We're looking, we started looking at the marks of the church. And the three marks of the church are your doctrine, pure doctrine, pure preaching of the gospel, the ordinances, and and church discipline. And so we looked last week primarily at the the mark of the church of doctrine, that a mark of a church is that it believes the right things. And so one of the things we wrestled with towards the end and uh, we're going to look at tonight and wrestle with this, how do we know that we have right doctrine? How do we know that we can trust what we're hearing? Because there's so many different opinions, aren't there? You have different denominations. Uh, I, I wish I only needed one commentary on the book of Romans, but I don't. I need, it. I need like 30. So how do we know? Well, the first thing is, is this, is that God has spoken to us. God has revealed himself to us in a way that we can know him. So he has given us what? He's given us special revelation. Specifically, he's given us the Bible. That we can pick it up and we can read it. Uh, there are, I think, around 2,100 unreached people groups that do not have the Word of God in their own tongue. And we need to be about translating that Word into all known tongues so that all people would have a copy of the Bible in their own language so that they can pick it up and read it for themselves. That was, we can be thankful to God's grace in the Reformation that that was a project and an outflowing of the Reformation. The first thing Luther did was he started translating the Bible into the vernacular of the German people, actually unified the German language, so that everyone would have a Bible and they could look and test these things for themselves. But there's something else we also have. In fact, without this, we can't understand the Bible. What is that that we have? We have the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has promised to teach you through this word. This word will not return void. What else do you have? You have a brain. You have reason. You have senses. God has given us a revelation of himself in actually in nature. We don't deny. No one really denies God. Everyone worships. Why? Well, <clears throat> because God has revealed himself. The heavens declare his glory. And so there's obviously this capacity to learn. We also have the testimony and witness of others, don't we? Well, you can look back upon a, a rich tradition of confirmation of what we believe. And so there's just, just giving us general things. There's four general things that, like, okay, how do we know? Well, we have these things, but that also requires that we work. And when we're assessing these things in terms of a church and the doctrine of a church, how does one treat the Word of God? We have to ask that question when we walk into a church. How is the Word of God handled? Specifically, how is the Word of God handled in the pulpit? And you can judge this with little to even great knowledge of the Bible by just asking a few questions. 
of how the person handled the Word of God. Not whether you think their interpretation is right. Just how did they, how did they handle the Word? Did they explain the text? In other words, did the sermon consist of God's actual word where they tell you, turn here, we're going to look at this passage, and I'm going to explain what it means? That's the first thing. Did they explain the text? Did they confirm with other scripture? How many witnesses do we need to confirm a truth? Two or three, yeah, right? Did they confirm with scripture? And this is an important one. Did they confirm with voices from the past. You know, there's a reason a lot of times that I might quote someone like Calvin or someone like Owen or Spurgeon or Augustine. It's because I want us to see that actually we stand in a long line of tradition. We're just not making this up. Another thing is this is is that text now applied? What does this mean for me? Okay, I understand the text. I see that it's, that's the right interpretation. Is it applied to my life? And, and, and that's important too because it is to say, does this, does this preacher actually think that the Word of God has an impact in my life and can actually direct me for the benefit of myself and the benefit of my neighbor? And then the other thing is this, is that did the congregation start throwing hymnals at the preacher in the middle of it and yelling at him and saying, no, we disagree? Is there congregational unity surrounded that's upon an agreed statement of faith? And if it's within those bounds, then you can say this, you can make this assessment accurately. Okay, this person is, is actually handling the word they're handling it correctly. They're, they're assuming that it's God's Word, and that is the center of what they're doing. Anyone, regardless of where they're at, can ask those questions and at least have it answered. This pastor is dealing with God's Word. Now, what I think is the, the way that we should be looking, well, what we should be looking for is what's called expositional preaching. Expositional preaching is just simply to explain what the meaning of the text is. It's to put forth the idea. Here's what God's Word says, and now I'm going to explain to you what this Word is saying. Mark Dever says this of expository preaching. He says, A commitment to expositional preaching is a commitment to hear God's Word, not just affirm that it is God's Word, but actually to submit to it. And so that idea that when we hear expositional preaching, what we're hearing is God's Word. Like Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, the preacher is speaking God's Word insofar as he is correctly interpreting, interpreting the Scriptures. And so expository preaching does that because we're dealing with the text of Scripture. And so why is this important? Well, Joel Beakey says this, Preaching is the most solemn task a human being could ever undertake. It is serious business for both the preacher and the listener. Eternal issues are at stake. Consequently, the true preacher may never neglect studious sermon preparation or the plain effective delivery of a sermon. I met a guy that called himself a preacher at least a number of years ago and he said I have this rare gift of I can look at a text of scripture and create an outline uh, in less than 20 minutes and then go preach for an hour problem is is you probably wouldn't want to hear that type of preaching 
that's not expository preaching. That's not faithful preaching. That's prideful arrogance. We have to understand what this word is. This word gives us life. Think about Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 6, where it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me among, around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord God, you know. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What gives life according to this text? It's God's word. How does God reveal himself to Moses? We might say God reveals himself as a fire in a bush. But he doesn't stop there. God's not contained in that. God actually does what? Speaks his word, reveals himself to Moses as his covenant name. I am who I am. So God reveals himself through his word. And this word, we believe, is recorded and written down in your Bible. And so then let's go to 2 Timothy 3.16, and we're going to spend some time here. I have, I, I have preached from this passage a number of times, and every time I come back to it, it's not like I'm repeating the same things. It's fresh every time. For me, in my study, maybe what comes out is the same, but in my study, it's always fresh to me, this passage. So all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So it says all Scripture, that is speaking of all the totality of Scripture, is what is told, we, is breathed out by God. Now, just really quickly, I just want to hang on to this for a second. Now, Paul, when he writes this, would have been thinking of the Old Testament. But it doesn't stop there because we have a complete canon of Scripture now. We see that Peter calls Paul's writing what? Scripture. Peter himself, I mean, excuse me, Paul himself even quotes words that were recorded by Luke of Jesus. So there was this acceptance of Scripture that Paul calls the Gospels Scripture. Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. So when it says all Scripture, it is the totality of Scripture, what you have from Genesis to the book of Revelation. That is all Scripture, and that is what we are told has this attribute that it was breathed out by God. So if Scripture is what is breathed out by God, it means this, is that the other things that are outside of Scripture are not breathed out by God. That's an important distinction. Other things are not. You think of it like this, as I'm looking at Scripture... 
I may use an illustration from experience or maybe from church history to say, you know, this helps illustrate this point, and sometimes it's appropriate to do that. We might explain the meaning of something with a story, but the story itself is not God's Word. There's no authority in it. You think of what we call sometimes secondary standards. That are, those are our confessions of faith. So we have certain confessions of faith that, that really set the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian. And then we have confessions of faith that identify us according to denominations. And we say those are authoritative insofar as they're correct in interpreting God's Word. But they're not breathed out by God. God did not breathe out to William Kiffin the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith. He did not breathe those things out. Now, they come from God's Word. They're derived from God's Word. They're built upon God's Word. They're making propositions that we clearly see in God's Word, but they themselves are not God's Word. So we don't say they're inerrant. We don't say they're infallible. We say they're authoritative and they're binding insofar as they're correct. Let me tell you what else is not breathed out by God, and that is your experience. So often, there is a there's this idea that we can determine truth by our experience. I experienced this, so therefore this tells me something about the Christian life. Well, actually, your experience is very flawed. It's very flawed. Experience is important. Experience can guide us. Experience can be a a light of reason that God gives us to help us move forward, but it's not infallible. You have the ability to reason through things. You have the ability to think through things. We have logic. We have philosophy. We have natural revelation. We have scientific method. And those themselves are actually fallible. Not natural revelation, but are determining those things and what it reveals. Only God's word is breathed out. And specifically, when it says breathed out, it means the air physically expelled out of the lungs of God. And now we know that God does not have lungs, that he's breathing out. But it is a picture for us that God has communicated himself. He has revealed himself to people that it could be written down and contained in a book. God has made himself known to us. God did not have to make himself known to us. This is an act of God's grace and benevolence. It's for our benefit. Now, while nature itself declares God's glory, the unregenerate person may not know God or come to know God through those things. So while God does reveal himself in nature, it takes God's breathed outward. Nature itself tells us this, that they can know God's invisible attributes and divine nature. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. In the confession, it says, though, although the light of nature and works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient 
to give that knowledge of God and His will, which is necessary unto salvation. In other words, while God has absolutely revealed Himself in nature, and if it is a revelation of God, now this is, gets tricky, but stick with me, it means it's an infallible revelation. What's fallible is those that try to observe and gain truth out of that. But it's not a sufficient revelation in leading us to the cross. It's not a sufficient revelation to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ that we may repent of our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. And so God had to give us a word if we were to be saved where He reveals His plan of redemption. He reveals why you were created, where He reveals what His purpose is for your life. And so only the Word is breathed out. And you think of it like this, is it, that, that expelling of uh, breath from the lungs of God. Just think of how Adam had life breathed into him from God. So also the Word is breathed out. And it itself is capable of giving life by the Spirit. And it is only through His Word that we learn of God's plan of redemption in Himself. So while we gain insight from things that we see in the world, and in itself is an infallible guide, it lacks in a knowledge of the faith and doctrines by which we are saved. Only the Word is breathed out that gives us a plan. Further, while we see in nature there is a Creator, that revelation does not tell us how we are to respond to a Creator. So where then must we look as our infallible guide to knowing and worshiping God? His revealed will. His breathed out Word. So how should we view this Word? We should view this Word as a blessing. We should view this word as our our greatest treasure that we could have because in it we meet Jesus, our Savior. So the word of God is not our object of faith. Jesus is our object of faith. The word of God points us to our object. So how do we get to know Jesus? How do we sit at the feet of Jesus? How do we know about the plan of Jesus of coming into the world? Well, God has given that to us in His Word that has been breathed out. We may never take it for granted. So the primary means of study, then, is this Word. Now, if we made the primary form of instruction something outside of the Word rather than the Word itself, we are no longer dealing with God's breathed out Word for us by which we get to know Him. So remember, we're talking about the doctrines of the church or the pure mark of a church, the the pure preaching, the pure doctrine. Where do we have to begin in examining that? God's Word. We have to go to God's Word. And one thing is, how, how do we handle that Word? Do we try to formulate what we believe on something outside of God's Word? decisions we make outside of God's Word? Well, then we are dealing with very fallible things. So how do we handle God's Word? Notice what Paul writes it is. He says it's profitable. That means there's value in it. It's beneficial 
to you. It, it promotes your well-being. So when you, when you pick up the word, do you view it as this is a profitable thing for my soul? And would we say, is this absolutely essential for my life? And for the church, is this absolutely essential for the church? If we say that it's profitable, then we would have to say yes. Now, specifically, it's profitable for teaching, for instructing in God's Word, that Word that is breathed out. So, if you think about it like this, that the Word of God is profitable... It's only profitable if we're actually dealing with it. I mean, we have to actually pick it up, read it, and then we have to study it, we have to teach it, we have to disciple from it. Uh, it's, it's only profitable in, in that sense. If it just sits there, it's, we haven't profited from it, have we? It's profitable for teaching. What's not necessarily profitable for teaching is if I was to stand here and teach you my opinions on life apart from God's Word, or maybe every now and then sprinkling in a little bit of God's Word, that's not profitable teaching. You might gain some insights from experiences I have had, but you're not encountering that breathed-out Word of God. You think of... Jesus' admonition against man's authority versus the authority of God's word. In Matthew chapter 15, you read this in verses 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus. You always know there's a confrontation whenever you read Pharisees and scribes. They're coming to Jesus... You know, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are, are like that one kid that never learns his lesson. And they just keep coming back for another beating. So they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now notice what they said. Why do you break the tradition of the elders? He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded to honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Notice what he says. You've chosen these traditions... And actually, you've made God's word void. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy over you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And here it is. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, their guilt was this. They're teaching their doctrinal standards as tradition and founded on tradition rather than on God's Word. So we have to be careful that we never elevate things like tradition that are man-made traditions to a place of authority. Now, you have heard me say, actually, it's very wise to look back on what? Tradition. How, but here's what I mean. 
How have people traditionally handled this passage of Scripture? Or how has the church traditionally handled these things? When we get into traditions where they become dangerous is where we make a tradition that might have started off as a good tradition, it becomes law, and we bind people's consciences by that law. You know, just just imagine that if there was a, a, a tradition that when you came into this church, uh, you had to do uh, say a certain prayer before you went and sat down praying for the service. That would be a good thing if you came in here and prayed for the service. But let's just say that that happened as a mandate of something. Hey, we're going to do this every time. We're going to commit to doing this. Well, after a few years of doing that, what it becomes is law. And then if you don't do it, now all of a sudden you're no longer identified with the group. We're, we're elevating traditions to bind conscience where we cannot do that. And that is what Christ is dealing with. Now the beauty of this idea of teaching, and we wonder, how do we know, how do we know that we can trust what we're hearing? The first thing is we have to, we have to admit this. Somewhere... Someone is preaching the truth of God's word. Now, how do I know that? Because Christ actually tells us that he would equip the church with right teachers. He says this, as in he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So ask yourself this question Do you trust Jesus? Well, Jesus has told you he is going to equip the church with people to teach. Jesus has promised to do that. So it's actually a matter of trusting Jesus that he it will accomplish, has accomplished, and is continuing to accomplish that which he has promised to do. He has promised to give the church teachers for the purpose of equipping people to work, equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And the, the beauty of this is, not only does Christ provide these teachers, He also equips them. Romans chapter 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes, and so on and so forth. Christ gives these gifts and he equips people. Now we have to be aware of this also, that there are, and this is where it becomes tricky, there are imposters out there. There are false teachers. You read with the prophets, there was the false and lying prophets. Well, guess what? There's false and lying preachers out there today. But we're not given, we're not left without a witness how to discern them. Again, you just go back to asking some of those very simple questions we started off with. If you start there, you're probably going to be on a good track. If they, if they meet all of those answers, you're probably on a good track already. 
But we're told this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's the danger right there, is because now what we're also told will happen is that there will be teachers out there that are not good teachers. And what will happen is actually there's going to be people flocking to them. So we see that. There are going to be teachers out there, and there's going to have a big crowd of people. So does having a big crowd mean that they are trustworthy? Not at all. Not at all. And it's harder and harder to discern with some of the nuances of theology, especially with social media and how so many use that to their advantage. And, and gather big crowds of people that follow them. But there's going to be those that are not of sound teaching. And we have to be aware of that, that there's those that will distort God's word. But we do see this, that Paul tells us that this word is profitable for teaching, that Christ supplies his church with spirit-empowered teachers, we're told not to rest in just that, but we're warned of competing voices and that we are to watch out for those. He goes on to tell us what else the word is profitable for, which is this, is for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Now, reproof... This is a, a these reproof and correction. You only find these words here in the New Testament. So sometimes there's a lot of debate on how to really define those words. But reproof looks at you would think of rebuke or exposing something. Here's the beauty of God's word: is it exposes wrong thinking and wrong actions. If you spend any time in God's word you'll be corrected at some point by it. Even in the most encouraging sermons, if they're expositional, biblical sermons, even in the most encouraging ones, there's going to be some conviction that comes with it. But the beauty of God's Word is not only does it rebuke us, it also heals us. Because we recognize that our comfort is in Christ. But think about what we're told the Word does. This wonderful passage in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But that doesn't happen unless we deal with the word of God unless it's read, unless it's taught, unless we sit under its teaching. This word, as we see in reproof, exposes us. And one thing we have to recognize is that when we are not in consistent alignment with this word, the word can be painful to us. Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Paul's letters were God's word. 
This is a letter to the church. He's already sent them one letter, and there's likely a third letter that we don't have a copy of that he has sent them. And it hurt them. He goes on to say, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. That word exposed the church of Corinth. Exposed them, and Paul even says, I, 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 didn't, this is, I didn't mean to frighten you with these letters. You see throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, that Timothy himself was to guard and be on guard from false teaching. It's also profitable not for, only for reproof, but for correction. That's setting something straight. This word will set you straight. One of the things in biblical counseling is that we root everything in God's word. Why? Because if we're out of line with God's word, God's word kind of functions like resetting a broken bone. It puts everything back in place. And the process of getting everything back in place can be painful, but but praise God that it's corrected and able to grow and be strengthened afterwards. And that's what God's word does to us. Is it does correct us, but that's a good correcting. And it trains us in righteousness. It's profitable for the training of righteousness. You think of training as that of cultivation in something, or it's sometimes used in rearing up a child. In fact, you find the word child in there for that training. It's, it's that, like rearing up a child. God's Word does that to us. And righteousness, not only do we see our, our source of righteousness, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also are taught how to live in accordance with righteousness. The word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word is, in other words, sufficient. Verse 17 says this, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word complete means that the Word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for leading the church. It is sufficient for our lives. It is sufficient for salvation. In other words, that the Lord has not left us without a witness to Himself and a witness to how we may be saved and how we may have right doctrines and how we may live in light of those doctrines. It is sufficient in those things. God's Word is sufficient. We don't need other things. We see this in the Confession of Faith. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Does the sufficiency of the Word teach me how to play guitar? No. It's not meant to be sufficient for that. But it does tell me that I need to play the guitar for God's glory and that God gave us music as a gift for joy and enjoyment. So while it doesn't teach me how to play the guitar, it certainly teaches me what the purpose in having a guitar is. is for His glory. 
And so we do say, when we say it's sufficient, we understand what that means. It's of all saving knowledge of faith and of obedience. Now, if pure doctrine is a mark of the church, then here's what I think. And I think we've seen this from Scripture. Then Scripture exposited is the best means for preserving pure doctrine. So how should we hear the word taught How should we hear the word preached? I think just like how we just did it, where we walked through a verse of Scripture and we looked at what it means, how it applies to us, and what did we do? We confirmed from other places of Scripture. We heard a confession of faith. We have heard voices from the past that say the same things. Now, you can start by testing this simply by asking, is the teacher or preacher actually working through a passage of Scripture or just using Scripture to confirm a preconceived idea? For instance, if I was to stand here and say, God wants you to be happy. And I I said, you know, your happiness is so important. And I was talking about the virtues of your happiness. And then I pulled a passage you know, just a single passage out of the Old Testament. And I said, see here, this is what God wants for you. Let me ask you, I know I'm using an absurd example that's obvious, but would that not be obvious to say that person's actually not dealing with God's Word? I think it should be obvious at that point where we can recognize, okay, they've taken their idea and now they're taking Scripture and making it say that. Now, I explained this briefly last week. Topical preaching is not evil. Actually, topical preaching is very beneficial. If you pick up a systematic theology, what it is doing is taking a topic or a doctrine from God's Word and compiling all the relevant passages to give us a fullness of a picture of something. That's, so, topical preaching in and of itself is not necessarily bad. It's how it's communicated, how it's done, uh, where it's be abused. It is a, a very much an abused method of preaching, but that doesn't make it in and of itself a bad method of preaching. I think expository is better, and you can also preach topically by expositing a passage of Scripture. That's what we did tonight. We're talking about preaching. We're talking about pure doctrine. So where do we go? Well, we go to the Word of God and see what it says about that. So we took a topic. We're not going verse by verse through something. You can test what you have heard also against what? Other scripture. Now look, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have God's Word. You, you, you have a certain set of, of knowledge that is if you're hearing something, you go, well, you know, I've never understood it that way, especially if you've been in church for some time. You know, I've never heard it that way before. Uh, I need to look and see if I understand it that way. Well, what does like our confession of faith say? But then also, when you hear something, what should you do? What did you mean by that? I, don't, I didn't quite understand that. Can you help me? Um, 
And you can do that in a local church. You can do that where you can speak to them and share concerns. And then finally, what I think is so great about the local church is community learning. Where we're learning together. I shared the example, and he's here tonight. It's Clarence. He had said, hey, this is how I think this passage of Scripture, what this passage of Scripture means. I said, that doesn't mean that. Next night, he says, this is what this passage of Scripture means. I said, I don't think that's what it means. Well, it bothered me. I went and looked up at some commentaries, and I sent him an email right away and said, Clarence, you were right. That's what this passage means. I think that's exactly what it means. That's community learning. And that's something that's great that happens in the local church. And we're all the better for it. So, pure doctrine is a mark of the church. We can, we can determine these things with some tools that God has given us by testing them through His Word, asking how is the Word of God handled. And that is our first start. We'll continue on this of determining pure doctrine more next week as we'll look at confessions. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is a sufficient guide for all things and matters of faith. We pray that we would treasure this Word. I pray that, Father, we would uh, expect much from the teachers that You have given uh, the church because You have given them much. I pray that for the help in this local church, that we, uh, the teachers that are here, myself included, that uh, Your grace would be great upon us as we try to work with Your perfect Word. And I pray for this congregation that their ears are are open to learning and being transformed by your word and that we would be all transformed uh, together. We pray that as we depart from here that you would begin to even work in our hearts now uh, for this coming Sunday, this Lord's Day, where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.